You're listening to the Salt Churches Podcast. Here you can listen to messages, inspiration, and lessons learned about planting microchurches all across the nation. Thank you for tuning in. To find more information, you can visit us at www.saltchurches.com. This podcast is brought to you today by Salt Church's founder, Parker Green. How you guys doing? Good? Things are good so far? I, um, I normally, when we come to PSL, we either have someone helping with the little kiddos, or um, the last couple of times we've come, they weren't as mobile. But um, we have a three-year-old right here. He's about to turn three. That's David Leonidas. And right over there is almost two years old. That is Ethan Everest. Yeah, I know. His hair's cute, right? That's what gives it away. And he's just a little chubby. He's a little chubby guy. And then that's my lovely wife, Jessie Green. Used to be Marquez. We met in New York City. Um, I was her pastor. Scandal. Started with scandal. Um, It didn't really. But um, it's been a lot of fun um, being here with the little ones and running around. I haven't been a part of the sessions um, as much as I normally am when I hear. I really like to go to almost the whole Project Searchlight. It's just fun for me to be a part um, and see people coming off the mission field. I actually never did um, the world race. My wife did. I went to Australia for three years to Um, intern at Hillsong out there, and I did Hillsong College um, in Sydney, Australia, which was a lot of fun. So this is the irony of what I'm about to talk to you about, which is I went to like the mega mega. Like I went to like the place that's doing mega the very best. Like if anybody's marketing the mega church well and like killing the game right now, it's Hillsong. Um, They can kind of go into a city and like poop on a corner and people are like, this is awesome. Let's go to this church. Um, And all the musicians just turn up out of nowhere and it's, um, it's amazing what they've done so far, but um, I'm glad you guys are here because um, coming off the mission field, I can imagine, and even coming back from Australia, for me, I'm from an environment where I was constantly on point, where I was 100 hours a week doing ministry stuff, um, either mopping floors or stacking chairs or working with youth or um, just doing a million different things and in community constantly because everyone was in college that I was kind of friends with. There were some people in the church as well that I was good friends with, but you're constantly spending time with these people. You're doing life together. And then you rip that kind of whole network apart the second you get back to your hometown or wherever you're from. And like the best you have is FaceTime or text or Facebook or whatever you're doing to stay in touch with each other. And that's um, that can set you off balance because um, the beauty of it is, and it's kind of like the military, right? You have a mission put in front of you almost for you. You have a rhythm set in front of you for you. Unless you're doing like an ATL or like an ask the Lord in a certain city, for the most part, even ATL is kind of structured in a way, right? Because someone tells you to do it. Now you're going back to a portion of your life where everything is kind of ATL and everything's kind of up in the air and you don't have the community you had before. And what you don't realize is that you've changed, right? (laughs) You've changed probably a lot. Some of you for better, maybe some of you for worse, I don't know. Um, Could be. Um, Ask your squad mates and get some feedback. But the reality is you've changed, and the place you're likely going back to and the church you're going back to um, and the people you're going back to likely haven't changed a whole lot in regards to the mission of Jesus Christ in their lives. So what I want to talk to you about today is the solution to that disconcerting feeling that maybe, just maybe, The way that the United States of America is doing church right now isn't entirely scripturally appropriate, accurate, or helpful um, across the board and across the breadth and depth of history and in the life of the individual. Um, There's one thing Jesus asked for, and that is disciple-making. At the end of Matthew 28, he talks about it. At the end of Mark, he talks about it. There are two commissions there. He talks about going out and preaching the gospel, right? He goes, talks about going out and making disciples, which is what Jesus did while he was on earth. So he's not asking us to do anything that he didn't do himself. Imagine yourself in the position of the God-man, Jesus. 
Like he has lowered himself to a degree that we can't possibly imagine to to walk around in this flesh bag and live this life and do it perfectly that we, we just can't imagine what that's like. And what does he do with most of his time? And I'll talk about this a little bit tonight as well. But you guys get like my special heartbeat on it in this, this little class. He spends most of his time with 12 dudes that aren't all that special. Like you see, even when he gets really, really popular, he disappears for long periods of time into the wilderness and into lonely places in order to invest in these 12 men. And I think Jesus is giving us a beautiful model for what the church is supposed to look like. It's always on mission. Jesus was always moving. He was always on mission. There wasn't one point in Jesus' ministry, even before his ministry, from what I can tell, where there wasn't, there wasn't mission in his life. He's always going to the next town. He was always looking for lost people. He was looking for broken people. He was looking for people that didn't even know they were broken, but they were wealthy and they, had, they thought they had everything they needed and he would correct them. His biggest enemies in public, it seemed, were Pharisees. And these were good people. If you really look at it on the surface, they get a bad name, right? They get a bad rap. But they're the ones that are running the church, so to speak. They're the ones in power. They're the ones running the synagogues. And they're generally good people. They're not cheating on their wives. They're following the law. They're doing the right thing. They're, they're, they're hedging around the law even. They're giving 10% or more of their income. They're, they're doing all the right ritual sacrifices at the temple. Like this is your church attender that's on the parking lot team for 20 years. And this is the guy that's running an amazing church on the surface that people love and love this person. And Jesus is openly confronting them in public. Why? Because the ritual and religion was getting in the way of people reaching God. So we're going to talk about why the church. Why the church at all? How many of you have had a negative experience in a church? (laughs) Oh my gosh, what a surprise. There are people in a church, right? So one thing I want to get through real quick um, before we get into this and talk about like church and the, the way we've been doing church and how unbelievable it is and how amazing it is and how I really, really hated it at first is if you have any bitterness or resentment against the bride of Jesus, you need to sort that out with him. So think of my wife, Jessie. If someone has an issue with her, if someone's angry with her, if someone has unforgiveness towards her, they have that issue with me. So when you think about the bride of Jesus, as imperfect as she may be, especially in the United States of America or in other places too, I'm sure you've seen it. I'm sure you've seen broken stuff in Africa and broken stuff in Southeast Asia and broken stuff everywhere where they're trying to put a model in place that just continues the bad culture that they already have and isn't kingdom culture. It can do the same thing in any culture. It's not just America that's screwing it up. We all are. So, um, and the other part I want to say is uh, forgive the church. I guess you can, but it's really difficult to forgive an organization, right? It's like, it's like, I forgive so-and-so church. There's probably a person that wounded you or hurt you. It, would that be right? Was it a person that gave you that bad experience in church? Yeah? No, nobody? It was just like you hated the worship. It was bad. It's off key. So don't want to admit wounds. That's fine. Um, but we'll move past that. So the reality is that you got to forgive a person. Forgive a person. And this will set you free. I'm doing this for your sake because I've had every bad experience in church. And the irony of it is, is where I started and where I grew up was in a broken home church. A broken home church that essentially was a cult and really weird. And the irony of it is I left that, we went to regular mega churches, and now I've come full circle and we're planting super healthy, super lively microchurches. Um, and we call them microchurches for a reason, right? Because um, we don't call them home churches, mostly um, because we don't want to gather people that are just mad at the church. Um, and house churches in the United States have kind of gotten a reputation for, well, I hate the big church. That's not what we're about. Um, Steve Jobs said something amazing um, that I kind of t- took to heart. He said, don't, don't hate the other product. Make something new and make the other product obsolete. So 
if we're doing something better, if we're doing something that's meeting more needs, if we're actually making disciples, if we're actually focused on the mission of Jesus Christ, if we're doing what he's asking us to do, if we're working and moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, if we're seeing these missional communities, these communities of love and prayerful love actually taking over entire communities and multiplying churches, then the other kind of church will become obsolete and expensive and and seem ridiculous in 20 to 30 years. That's what we're aiming for, okay? So there's nothing particularly wrong with a big church, but there are some things that aren't scriptural, that are extra scriptural, that maybe add some weight, that slow it down, no matter how big it is. Um, So why the church? So if you think about where most of your wounds come from, if you think about where most of your joy comes from, if you think about where, like, all the stuff of life really, really happens. It's in relationships, right? It's like you got your heart broken or you had some huge victory with another person or you find the person that you're going to be in love with for the rest of your life or that person totally shatters your whole existence or somebody in a church hurts you, abuses you or somebody outside the church or at a job or something says something rude that you remember for the rest of your life or someone in your family, your mother or your father, say something that sticks with you Every single, where you go, every single place you go, and there's this, this voice in your head that you can't get rid of. All those things happen in relationships. So what's God's plan in the earth when it comes to church? His plan on the earth is to restore family. And family is like a word that people get like weird about, right? Because everybody has a jacked up family in one way, shape, or form. It's like, I came from a perfect family, and then you go spend time with other people, and they're like, no, that's, that's not normal about your family. I hope you know that, that that's not normal. That's not okay. <laughs> that's weird and broken in a different way um, than out on the surface. So Adam and Eve were the original family, right? If we read the book of Genesis, they're the original family. First, they break fellowship with God through sin, and then they break fellowship, really, that intimacy with each other. So the first family starts as a broken family, and then right after, right, out, right when they get out of the garden, they lose their son. In fact, Adam and Eve lose two sons in one day. If you think about it, Cain kills Abel, and then God banishes Cain. So they, all, they have the first shattered, broken, jacked-up family of all time. And sin, just, sin is just getting started. So you can imagine how deep and crazy and wild things get. So what is God doing with the church. He's restoring family through the name of his son, Jesus. The overall picture here is for the people of God who have taken on his name through the blood of Jesus, right? You're sons of Abraham and daughters of Abraham, right? And sons in the Bible is used for both, especially in Greek. So you're you're children of God. And what does that mean? It means a lot more than we think We take on the name of the king through the blood sacrifice of his son and the power of his life through his resurrection. And we get to do that life together. That's what the church really looks like. If if you're in a church or if you're walking out your Christianity and it's not working for you, then you haven't tapped into what the gospel actually is. Too many people have a transactional relationship with Jesus, right? So I got saved, right? You raise your hand, you go to the front, and you like say this prayer, and all of a sudden you're saved, but your life might not be different than any other person that you run into on a daily basis. That doesn't make any sense. That's not the gospel I read. The gospel I read is the gospel of the kingdom present here and now for your life to actually transform. Now imagine doing that life with a group of people that are at war together, that are doing life together, that that suffer together, that share things together, that give to each other in real life. Now these things don't happen by aiming for community. I want to make that really, really clear. So I want to get something, I want to wash this from your brain. If you're coming back to the United States and looking for a church based on looking for community, you're going to be sorely disappointed. I'm just going to let that hang for a second. And that might frustrate some of you, but I just want you to look at it scripturally, okay? For a second, think about why the disciples were close to each other. Why do you think the disciples were close? Throw throw a couple answers at me. Why were the disciples so close to each other? They're pursuing the same thing. And what is that? They're unified in Jesus, right? 
So their pursuit is Christ. Their pursuit is not community. Their pursuit is not necessarily the kingdom of heaven, even. Their pursuit is not necessarily helping the poor or justice. Their pursuit is Christ. And what that does is it tunes every single one of them to him. And once they're all tuned to who Jesus is and they get close to Jesus, they can do all those other things. All those other things flow from a relationship with Jesus. So our goal in discipleship in Salt Churches is intimacy with Jesus. It's unbroken fellowship with Christ and obedience to him. How do you make a disciple? You teach people how to have unbroken fellowship with Jesus and obey him. If you read the Great Commission, he says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. So as we go about this walk, as we go about and make disciples and tune them to Jesus, you automatically form a church. Something we have to remember in the United States is that, and I have to remind myself of this constantly, is the gospel creates the church. The church does not create the gospel. That's why that invitational model to me is so weird. It's like, come hear the professional talk about the gospel. Okay? Effective to a degree. But what if every single one of you or every single person was actually equipped to preach the gospel to their friends, to their household, to the people they go to the gym with, to the people that they work with? It'd be a lot more effective than a preacher on a Sunday and trying to get someone through the doors of something they don't really understand. How many of you really trust corporations? How many of you really trust the government, right, to take care of you? Like, corporations have your best interests in mind, right? And so does the government power structure. Okay, so we've got it clear that millennials don't trust corporations or the government. So why would they trust a church of 20,000 people with great branding and a great name every time you try and invite them and get them in the door? There's probably great people there, don't get me wrong. And the reason they'll stay is because they connect with people, other people. But millennials want to know their pastor, They want to know that the person they're following is walking it out in real life right in front of them. We have something at our house called the open fridge and open door policy. So we were the oldest people in our church for a while. I'm 33 um, at this point, and Jess is 29 forever. She's 34. So people eat all our food. They're in our house. They watch us argue, and Jess and I are, do you guys do Enneagram stuff? Okay, yeah, it's like Christians love it right now. It might be satanic, but I don't know. Um, Who knows? It's like shaped like a pentagram. It's like, I'm a winged devil. And (laughs) so I'm a three, and she's a seven. So we always say, like, either we're going to burn down our whole lives or light the world on fire. It's going to be, there's like no option in between. So sometimes, like, when things are too peaceful, I'll start a fight with her just so I feel alive which is really annoying um, for everybody involved. <laughs> and so, so people get to watch us work that out, right? They get to watch us change over time. They get to watch us follow Jesus. They get to watch us struggle in ministry and planting churches. They get to watch us do life. So discipleship is never a program. It never has been a program. If it's something that has a start and a finish date to it, I would be super, super suspicious. You can't factory disciples. You can only grow them. They grow up out of the ground, and the word organic has been totally destroyed by marketing, but they do grow up out of the ground by teaching people how to get close to Jesus. And once those people start following Jesus, they'll turn up to a gathering to celebrate who he is, and you have a gathering of believers following Jesus together. See, it's not about planting churches. If you look through the entire New Testament, you won't find that phrase which is insane to me, because that's like what I do. (laughs) What we really do is preach the gospel, pray together, start making disciples, and a church forms. It grows up out of the ground. We make it too complicated, right? It's like, oh, it's going to cost me money. It's going to be difficult. I'm going to have to learn a bunch of stuff. We did a church um, planting summit, which I'm going to offer you guys to sign up for but when we're done here. A couple of months ago now, and it took us three days to teach people how to plant churches. A lot of 
church planting factories now take weeks or months or even years to teach people how to plant churches. If you read the Bible clearly and, and, and take it not from a perspective of your particular culture, but if you read through it, you'll notice that nobody's ordained, that all positions in the church are functional and not positional. So when we name an elder in our church, right? The name an elder in Salt Church is which we have, which is biblical, because church discipline is biblical, church encouragement is biblical. All those things are biblical. That's how Paul the Apostle changed the entire Roman Empire, right, through planting churches like he talks about in Ephesians. But here's the thing. They're already doing it when we tell them they're elders. They're eldering already. It's the people that would be obvious that you'd go to for advice. It's the people that are mopping the floor afterwards. It's the people that are already doing the dishes. It's not the people that you have to put in a position to get them to do something. That's the beauty of it. And it continues to grow and flourish in that way because you don't need any special training. You don't need anything in particular. You don't need an it factor. If you're a weirdo, like, guys, we're not in high school anymore. There's lots of weirdos out there that would start a church with you right? If you're generally like a normal, like run-of-the-mill jock, there are a lot of jocks out there that would start a church with you. If you're anything in between, because we're millennials and we're weird and everything's like turned on its head, like nerds are cool and cool kids are not cool anymore, then it should be pretty simple for you to start a church if you do what the Bible just says. Obedience is success. Doing what Jesus asks us to do is the successful thing. Making disciples is the successful thing. So I'm going to read from Ephesians 4, 1 through 12. Um, And we're going to talk, if you guys want to know something about how the church should function and what it looks like scripturally, this is what a lot of theologians call the, almost the constitution of the church, right? This is like a founding document of the church. Paul the Apostle, first of all, is just brilliant. He's a brilliant, not just like at, at the way he strategized and the way that he planted churches and the way that he made disciples and the way he traveled and what he did and how he listened to the Holy Spirit. But just from a philosophy perspective, and I mean philosophy as in how you actually live your life, not philosophy as in sitting in a classroom and getting good grades on a test about philosophy. I mean, talking about how you actually live your life. He's probably by far the most influential philosopher that has ever lived, by far. All right, Ephesians 4, 1 through 12. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Here's a big one, guys, for all of us. There is one body, talking about the church, and one Holy Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all of the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Are you guys getting how big God is right now? Are getting a picture of how Jesus is competently in charge of the entire universe, and we're trying to do church our way. So this is the guy that invented gravity, that spoke light into being before there was a sun and moon and stars. He created light before the rest of that stuff. If you read the creation account in order, the first thing he does is say, let there be light. How is that possible if there's nothing actually producing it? He created the substance of light. And we're like, let's have corporate churches instead of the way God says. I know he invented light, but let's do it like our way. And and even if you look at it scientifically, it's the worst possible way to learn. Like this right now, most of you aren't going to remember a thing that I say. You might remember how you feel, and you might review your notes and actually do something about it. But Jesus never intended to teach people in a way that they didn't have life change. They weren't taking notes on like a tablet or on like papyrus. Like you'd be surprised to walk into a synagogue and see the disciples just telling you to listen. There's not a tape to listen to, but they still managed to write the gospels from memory. That's how good his stuff was. So 
So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. For what? To equip his people for works of service. For what reason? So that the body of Christ may be built up until, that we, until we all reach unity. So the goal of unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what are we aiming for? Maturity in Christ. We're aiming for Jesus. And what are these apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for? To equip the body of believers so that they attain to that knowledge of Jesus. Not attain to the knowledge of five steps for a better life. Not attain to the knowledge of having success in your business. Not attain to the knowledge of blah, 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 all the other American dream things that we add to it. But to attain to the knowledge of Jesus. So the purpose of every single church every body of believers, and the universal body of believers, which is, funnily enough, the word Catholic. (laughs) The universal body of believers. The whole point is to be joined to the head that is Jesus. If anyone tells you they're in charge of the church or a church, that doesn't make any sense. They've been given a position in order to edify the believers, to equip the believers, to strengthen the body of Christ. And how do you do that? You teach them about Jesus and how to follow Jesus, how to be with Jesus, and how to do what Jesus did, and how to be intimate with Jesus, and how to learn from Jesus, and how to Jesus, 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 Jesus your whole life. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the focus. There is nothing but Jesus involved in the church. If you could just write one big word in whatever you're taking notes in, or if you're taking mental notes, just write Jesus. If you follow him, you'll end up in a church. If you do what he asks and obey what he tells you to do, you'll end up in a church. It's not rocket science. Do you think that at the beginning of the book of Acts, we're going to read from Acts 2 here in a second and walk through it. Do you really believe that when Peter is baptized in the Holy Spirit, do you think at the back end of that he's thinking, man, How can I do this church thing right? How can I build this organization? How how am I going to figure this out? Probably not. He was probably just as stunned by the Holy Spirit, first of all, as everybody else at the founding of the church, right? What's the first thing that Peter, who would become Peter the Apostle, do? What's the first thing he does when he's baptized in the Holy Spirit? You guys can answer. He preaches the gospel. Right? He essentially goes up on a balcony or an elevated place somewhere, probably just outside the temple, a lot of people think, where there are thousands of people already gathered around the day of Pentecost, and says, look, this Jesus who you killed is God. Say you're sorry. That's pretty straightforward, right? And now we're like trying to get seeker friendly. It's like seekers will find Jesus, the real one. We don't need to be seeker-friendly. We need to tell people who Jesus actually is, and the people that are seeking him will find him. Because what does the scripture actually say? Seek him and you'll find him. You know when we started to have success in salt churches? When I sat down with everyone, there were about 20 people in a room, right? And some of the nights there were two people, some night, like it was the worst. I felt like I made the worst decision of my life moving from New York to do this thing. About 20 people in a room, and I said, maybe less. I said, stop inviting people. Stop. Stop inviting people to church. You go and make disciples. They'll turn up. It's your job to make disciples, not just mine. I'll be obedient to Christ, but nobody's going to answer before that great white throne for you, including me. Whatever decisions you make going away from this searchlight, whatever you guys decide to do, however you walk out from here, nobody is going to answer on that judgment day before the great white throne, and you'll realize how big God actually is at that point, except for you. Nobody's going to do that for you. So when you read scripture, and you know all these things, and you know you should be making disciples, and you know you should, 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 and I'll tell you guys the motivation for that a little bit more tonight, but the reality is, like, nobody's going to answer for you. You need to obey Jesus. Look at the prophets. Look at the men and women that came before you that died for for Jesus. Look at them. 
they didn't care what people thought about how they followed Jesus or what it looked like. They weren't worried about that. They were worried about what their master commanded them to do. That's it. Imagine how simple your life would become if your sole focus was, you know what? Obedience is my success. What does following Matthew 28, 18 through 20 actually look like practically? Well, do what Jesus did. Pretty straightforward. So we're going to take a look at what the early church looked like. This is what we'd call ecclesiology. (laughs) So we're going to talk about what church actually is and what we believe church actually is. And we're going to pull this out of scripture, not from what we've seen or what we've heard. We're going to let you guys tear this apart a little bit, and we're going to get a little bit interactive. So I want you guys to just, as we read through this, like actually like raise your voice and you can shout at me if you want. If you have any questions, please ask them at this point. I think we have 30 minutes, right guys? Is it till 1230? You guys have lunch? Okay. I'll try and leave some time for Q&A if you guys are into that. Does that sound good? Okay. Acts 2, 36 through 47. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So this is the end of Peter's message. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So let's compare and contrast right now. How often do you hear a message like this in the pulpits in the United States of America? Besides some of the reformed guys that don't like believe in the Holy Spirit almost at all. (laughs) We need them. We need sheriffs in town. We need those guys. They're part of the body. How often do you hear it? Let me ask this question, a couple of questions. So when was the last time you heard a message on repentance? Two days ago? Who spoke it? Dion? Oh, Dion's bringing the fire. We love, we love South Africans for that purpose. They love repentance. South Africans are dry as a bone, but man, they'll let you have it. So, all right. So you've got, you guys have heard it two days ago. Do you guys think that's normal? Okay. So probably not a normal occurrence, right? When was the last time you heard a message about the kingdom of God? Training camp? Okay. So what does Jesus mostly talk about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The kingdom of God. It's kind of the core of his message, right? He being the entrance to the to the kingdom of the heavens, right? That's present and available for us on a daily basis. But we don't hear preaching like that, right? So those are a couple of messages, the message of repentance and following Jesus and the message of the kingdom of the heavens that plant a church. So watch this. We'll we'll go to the planting of the first church and they did it accidentally by preaching a message of repentance. I can't wait till I can accidentally plant churches. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. All right, let's start from verse 42. What does this church look like? Let's take it piece by piece. What's in this church? And you can put it in our vernacular, okay? What's happening in this church? What does this church contain? What's happening? What do you see there? They're gathering. Yep, that's right. They're getting together. Praying teaching, eating, devotion. What does the devotion look like? Loyalty to one another. You could call it love, loyalty. Yep. Unity. Yep. What else? What are they actually doing? Let's, let's turn this into verbs, not just um, not, um, 
a descript, not just descriptive words. They sold their possessions, right? And gave to the poor. So they're committed to this body of believers to the, to the point where they actually do something about it, right? Sacrifice, yeah, we see sacrifice. Yep, they're giving up what they have. So what's devotion to the apostles' teaching mean and to fellowship? What does devotion to teaching mean? Right, so they're actually doing it, right? So being devoted to teaching is not sitting and having a, a discussion necessarily about the Bible. Devoting yourselves to the apostles' teaching is doing what the apostles tell you Jesus told them to do. I can't imagine a situation where all we do is talk about the gospel and talk about Jesus and talk about the fundamental aspects of scripture and our faith and our belief, and then not do what it actually says. You guys are all sitting in chairs, right? So you believe that that chair is going to hold you for the most part, right? So when we say we believe in Jesus and we believe in the gospel, what does that actually mean? It means we're actually going to do it because people do what they actually believe. And that's what actually forms a church. You're functioning in a place and doing what you actually believe. You're not doing what you think you believe. You're not doing the things that are ethereal and out there and you've read in scripture and is in like a nice scripture. Like, like when you read Jeremiah 29, 11, you're like, I know the plans God has for me, like declares the Lord. And like we leave out like the Babylonian exile and like all the context of that scripture. But it's still a great promise, right? Do you function in a place where you believe God has great plans for you? Are you willing to roll the dice on that scripture? Like roll them hard, like to the point where it hurts real bad. That's what believing and devoting yourselves to the apostles' teaching actually looks like. It means doing what they actually say. Then we go to breaking of bread and to prayer, right? What's breaking bread actually mean? You're eating together, right? It's not like little, like, tasteless crackers and, like, crappy orange juice. It's like, this stuff is the worst, man. Nothing drives me more wild than communion. Every week, we have a meal together in salt. That's the Lord's Supper. What does Jesus mean when he says, every time you do this, remember me. Remember what I've done for you. He means every time you sit down to eat, which is what our lives actually revolve around. How many of you guys have fasted for more than like three days? Right? So more than three days, and I mean a biblical fast, not like Instagram or like something like not eating. Like the only fast in the Bible that I can find is not eating. Um, But you start to realize when you fast how much your life revolves around food. I did a 21-day fast one time, and I'm like, like I, I was like, I don't, I'm not going to have any friends by the time this is over. Like, everyone just eats. It's all you people do is eat. It's disgusting. But our lives really revolve around sitting at tables together and eating together, Right? And so every time we sit down together as believers, we remember what Jesus has done for us. And that changes the significance of the meal. That changes the nourishment of the meal. That changes the conversation around the meal. Because every time we sit down, we're talking about who he is. That's a life-giving conversation. If you sit down at a table and break bread and eat together, and you remember who Jesus actually is and what he's done for you, how much gossip and slander do you think is going to happen there? that table, right after you remember that you're washed in the blood of Jesus and like he chose you and you didn't choose him and he's the one that did the saving, not you. You didn't make the choice. He chose you. As soon as you realize that, you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't talk bad about this other person, right? That stops gospel and slander in its tracks at the dinner table, right? Remembering Jesus through our daily lives actually allows us to have healthy churches, Because he becomes the focus, not what so-and-so did, not what the leadership did, not what the elders did, not what someone else is screwing up, but you take ownership for your own salvation and working it out, right? They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Anyone heard of Venmo? It's really simple and straightforward to provide for needy people in our churches. We had a couple in our church a few weeks ago that was, were like stressed out like crazy like, we're like 500 and something dollars short. We have a church of probably all up, I'd say, in Orange County, around 100 people, right? Or multiple churches there. So we tell everyone, okay, Venmo this 
and they're away on vacation. Venmo this number. And they like start blowing me up, texting like, what's happening? I'm getting all these Venmos. What's going on? We at least doubled what they needed for that month. One of my buddies in discipleship, we do these discipleship groups called fire teams. We have four or five people meeting in discipleship, right? We keep pushing this guy because he's struggling with a bunch of stuff to get out of town, get on his own, and get out in the wilderness and spend time with Jesus. He kept making excuses, right? Over and over again. Every week, it was like nauseating, so annoying, right? And when you make disciples, you'll realize that. It's like, gosh, this is so annoying and long-term, and I didn't, why don't you just be like Jesus right now? Um, (laughs) And then it just reveals how, like, terrible you are. Um, At the same time, real closeness actually does that. So, He's making all these excuses. He's like, I can't do it. I need like $1,000 for rent by the end of this week. And I need to like, I need to pitch this client on Friday. And uh, if I don't do that, I won't have the money. Two guys in the group, this is four dudes. Two guys in the group look at each other and they're like, we'll cover it. And I had camping gear in the back of my, in the back of our SUV. We, I just got back from doing solitude in Joshua Tree. So I'm like, oh, I have this pack. It's already packed up. It's everything you need. Here you go. My buddy has a cooler full right next to it, because he just got back from camping. We throw it in his car and say, you leave tonight. Like, that's what sharing life actually looks like. We left him, there was no quarter. He couldn't go anywhere but away at that point. So he walked out with $1,000 in the camping gear to go on a trip at the end of discipleship. That's just in one morning of a church following Jesus together. And you know what? We weren't trying to build community. I, I don't even use the word anymore because it's been dragged through the dirt to be honest. It needs to be fixed. I'll I'll admit that. But I don't use it anymore because it's so much more effective to say, let's follow Jesus together. And they're like, hey, like my disciples are like, hey, have you read this verse in Acts 2, 36 through 47? Are we doing that? And I remember we're marching through Matthew and uh, Genesis right now, just going back and forth in our church. You can download our app and like we have all the studies in there. But we're walking through that in our church and we get to the part where Jesus goes in the wilderness and fasts. And like a dude that just got saved in our church, like just baptized, goes, hey, Jesus fasted. Should we all fast? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, we actually should do what the scripture says. So our church goes on a three-week fast because we're just doing what the Bible says. And that's like pretty straightforward, pretty simple, right? Just do what Jesus did if you want to do what he did. Yep. For, yeah, when I do, when I fast, I don't eat. I drink water and drink tea, like fasting tea at night. Um, that's just how I do it. It's the most effective way for me. But you'll find about Jesse and I, we're not really like, oh, I'll do like a little bit here and a little bit there. It's like, I'm going to do 21 fast day fast. I'll start tomorrow. It's like probably unsafe, but I did it. Um, and that's why we ended up in California, to be honest. Um, uh, one of the biggest reasons. At, at, at about day 10, you stop caring what people think at all about you. It's really weird. It's like because you haven't eaten for a few days and you're like, actually, your body's actually starving at day 10 and starts to devour itself. You're like, I just don't care what you think even like a little bit about what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> like I care what Jesus thinks. Like I don't care. I hardly care what I think about what I'm going to do with my life. But Yeah. So we'll keep going here real quick, and then we'll have questions for the last, I guess, 15 minutes or 10 minutes, if I can get through this. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders at the signs, wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Miracles are happening. Pretty straightforward, okay? There's signs and wonders, and if we're not seeing signs and wonders, we should start to preach it and believe it and practice it until we start to see them. All the believers were together and had everything in common, so their lives were in common. It doesn't just mean money, right? It doesn't just mean physical possessions. It means they had their lives in common, right? Like this verse can get twisted in some super weird culty ways, right? Private property is still important. The important part about this, guys, is that they did it because they wanted to, right? It wasn't government forcing someone or a church forcing someone to give their money. It was people by the power and love of the Holy Spirit doing it because they chose to. That's the big difference between what people say. It's like, oh, Jesus was a socialist, or Jesus was like a evangelical, like conservative. No, like Jesus wasn't on either political side. Let's get that really clear. And when it comes to church, like Jesus is on his side, 
and you join him or you go to hell. It's pretty straightforward, right? Join the kingdom or don't, but you have the opportunity. It's open to you, right? And that's the beauty of the gospel. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. So what does that tell you? These people liked being together. They were so filled with love for each other and awe of the Holy Spirit and awe of what God is doing. Like, we need to get together and talk about what God is doing because this is insane. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were joyful. They're good at partying. One thing we suck at in the American church is celebrating. It's a spiritual discipline. Throw a party. Everyone wants to come to a party. Think about that. Like, people, like, I don't know if I want to go to your church, but you're like, you want to come to this party? Everything's free. Absolutely. Put food on the table and you'll have a church in like two seconds. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So there's evangelism. It's not us four no more. It's not about the people in the group. It's about reaching God's lost sons and daughters. And I'll finish with this, okay, before we get into questions. Here's the thing. If, if you see a church that isn't focused on reaching lost kids, God's lost kids, run away. If their main focus is community, if their main focus is even helping the poor, if their main focus is blah, 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 blah. If it's not preaching the gospel and seeing God's lost kids saved, number one, numero uno, that church will get septic. Whether it takes 20 or 30 years or it takes five or it takes two, it's a poisonous environment to be in because it's self-centered Christianity. Think about it this way, and this is a story I tell. We lost Ethan one time. <laughs> it's not super funny. It was kind of scary. So we were at a friend's house. First time we were at their house, we didn't really know the house that well. So, like, kids are playing in the living room. I'm kind of playing with David. Ethan goes outside for a second, like, in this little courtyard area. Ethan is the, the younger one, if you guys remember. But he's like a bear. Like, he just gets into everything. Like, his hands are all over. He's always playing with something, always breaking something. Like, he's just, like, that's his style. So he wanders off somewhere, and I'm like, okay, for two seconds. And then I get this, like, feeling in my stomach, and I think it was the Holy Spirit, honestly. And I turn to Jess, and she's having, like, a conversation with a friend. And before Ethan was in the room with me, I assumed Jesse was watching. She was having a conversation. And he wanders into a different part of the house, and this is, like, three months ago, right? And at this point, we'd never seen him open a door. So we're running through the house, like, where's Ethan? I'm like, do you see, like, where's Ethan? Where's the other one? Um, that's so a phrase that comes out of my mouth a lot. When I see one, I'm like, where's the other one? <laughs> um, but like, he, he, he's nowhere in the house. We can't find him anywhere. He's not under like little Harry Potter staircase area. He's not like upstairs. He's not downstairs. He's not in the kitchen. He's not in the courtyard. And the, the door was closed. The front door was closed. He had managed to open a door for the first time ever with a knob, reach up, open it and like walk down around the corner out the neighborhood like and he's like in this like cul-de-sac like area just like toddling around like totally like oblivious to the fact that he's he doesn't know he's lost he's two years old not even at that point two years old he doesn't know he's lost he's just going for a wander like he's just doing his thing and we're running around the house. We're screaming. The people in the house with us are screaming his name. We're all looking all over the place. Jesse finds him around the corner with this nice Asian family. They're, like, playing with him. Luckily, we're in Irvine, California. It's, like, basically all Koreans and Persians. That's all who live there. Um, but they found him, and we were unbelievably overjoyed. Like, the sense of relief, the sense of, oh, thank you, Jesus. Like, we found our boy. Now imagine us being in that house and the friends we're having dinner with, for the first time, by the way, are like, eh, kids get lost. And they just sit down. Like, we're focused on making dinner, actually. Actually, could you grab me that thing right up there? Could you help me make dinner? Like, imagine you go to God on a daily basis. You're like, God, I need monies. God, I need a job. God, I need this. And, you, and you're... He's like, my kids are lost. If I give you a job, because I'm sovereign, by the way, if I give you a job, it's so that you'll reach lost kids. My focus is my kids that are missing, and I'm choosing them, and I'm highlighting them, and the Holy Spirit's been working on them, and I want to partner with you to reach them. When your church is focused on that, they go to war together. 
And who are the closest people on earth together in the world? Like, who are the closest people to each other in the whole world? Men that go to war together. Not be, nobody joins the Marine Corps and says, man, I really need the, needed the community. That's what I joined for. I needed a friendship. I said, I want to go kill the enemies of the United States of America. That's why most Marines join. They know that's why they're joining. You join this army in order to reach lost kids. Freely you've received, freely give. It's really straightforward. And then teach them the way of following Jesus. And that's how you plan a church. Really straightforward. Whatever you do in life, whatever you're focused on, whatever's going on, God's top priority is I want to fill heaven and heaven now, the kingdom of heavens, of the heavens that is available to you through my son Jesus. I want to fill it with people. I want to fill it with lost people, people that don't even know they're lost. And I want you to teach them how to follow me, to live this life, to live this actually good life, because that's what they're searching for anyways. And you can restore family by going on mission together. You can work it out with a group of people. And you know why I believe a lot of the original apostles and the original believers had so much courage? Because they knew every single person in their church would do the exact same thing. Are you going to a church where people would die for the gospel of Jesus? If it comes to that. I hope it doesn't. I hope we have revival and the laws swing the opposite direction and that, like, Internet giants get reined in a little bit here. Like, I hope that stuff happens so there's not persecution. But if there is, are you in the type of church where people are willing to die so that the secret doesn't get let out where you meet or won't give up the gospel? Like, or are you in a church where people show up to get what they need, to feed at a trough? What I tell my boys all the time, and I mean my boys, the guys I disciple, is real men hunt, kill, clean, cook their own food. That's what you need to do with the word of God. I'm not here to feed you. I'm here to teach you how to hunt. That's what disciple making really is. Because in 20 years, if my kid is still spitting up food and doesn't know how to cook a sandwich, like a grilled cheese sandwich, like if he doesn't know how to cook a grilled cheese sandwich in like 20 years, then I've made a mistake, right? And if you've been a Christian for 20 or 30 years, you don't know how to share the gospel and make disciples. The people that have been raising you spiritually have made a mistake. And you need to take your spiritual life into your own hands and grow up. Plant a church around you if you don't have one that suits, right? All right, last five minutes, Q&A. Go ahead. We are in October. Um, no, the couple that's running it just moved. But uh, my email is Parker at saltchurches.com, and I'll send, you the, I'll send you the exact address, and you can connect with them when you go back. Are you, are you in Chicago? Okay. Yeah, I think they were, were in South Chicago, but um, they moved, so I'm not exactly sure where they are, but I'll connect you with them right away. Yeah, we'll just send an email chain. Yeah, in Colorado Springs, too. She's just, she lives in Chicago, so she was asking specifically. What? I'm doing it right now. Did you have a question? I will at the end of this. Yeah. She, she has to say stuff like that. It's like, I will forget. Um, any other questions? Keep going. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, why Salt Churches and is there a website? Um, saltchurches.com. So I'm amazed we got that name, but we did get it because my wife is amazing. Saltchurches.com is our website, um, and you can find our churches on there too and more information, and there's a video about microchurches as well if you want to share it with people. And as well, like what Jess talked about, the summit, we're going to teach people November 1st through the 4th in Southern California how to plant microchurches. So we have a whole manual, and there's a four-phase process that we walk people through. It's really simple um, to plant churches in their own homes, apartments, coffee shops, doesn't matter. Good job, buddy. Um, we call it salt churches because we couldn't get away from that scripture for some reason, be, being salt and light. And what I love about the context of that scripture is, is essentially it's like, if you have Jesus, this, this can't be helped. Like you are the light of the world, obviously. Like you can't hide it under a bushel. Like you're filled with the life, resurrection life of Jesus. Um, so we wanted a church like that. And if you ever get a chance to attend one of our gatherings or come to any of our discipleship stuff, 
it's salty. Like, we got a salty crew. Like, it really is. Like, it's, like, the name does something. It's like, there you can tell, and it, conferences and stuff we've gone to, people are like, I can tell who your people are. Because they're walking out together. They're getting discipled, man. All right. November 1st through the 4th is the Church Planting Summit. It'll be in Orange County um, in Southern California in November, which is a great time to leave the cold and come to Southern California and go to Disneyland and do whatever you want. And it's on our website. So if you go to saltchurches.com, there's a summit button in the right top corner, and there's an application um, to, to apply for the summit. Um, and then it's, I uh, believe, 150 bucks for one person, $200 for couples. So no pretend marriages, all right, guys? But if you, have some, if you have issues with the money, we don't want to prevent people in that way. So um, we do have sponsors. But it will do you good to come up with 150 bucks to come. It's not that much money for, like, my six- to seven-year journey of figuring out how to plant these. You get that all in one weekend. So it's a high value. Uh, we don't have a live stream at the moment. Because of the culture of our church... Um, because of the type of church we are, we likely won't ever have live stream. It'll likely always be a situation where it's come and see. We will when we have more um, and larger hubs, like churches that have grown into multiple churches. Um, So we have a poll there and a team to actually run it. Um, But if you can get a group of 20 people together to learn how to plant churches, I'll turn up. I'll let you go for free. (laughs) Thanks, bud. Um, I'll do two more questions, and then we'll call it. Yep. No, go ahead. How much? 275. (laughs) 275 on a good day. It's more, my squat's my, my squat's my bread and butter. You can see it when I turn sideways. (laughs) I'm so embarrassed, so strong. Um, Any other questions? Go ahead. Yes. Um, So uh, we let the elders of the church get, get a pulse on their church and do whatever they want, but we have a lot of material that allows them Um, to follow along if they want to. During the launch phase of the church, and I can explain this more, it's not needed detail, but the first four months are different from what everyone else is doing because it's a lot of activation the first four months and teaching people what it's like to be a part of one of these churches. Um, But um, right now, we're just marching through the Bible as a whole church. Matthew 1, Genesis 1, Matthew 2, Genesis 2, and giving people a general biblical worldview and teaching them how to decipher Scripture for themselves. It's really simple. It's like, what does it say? Like, what, what does the original author intend? What does it say about the character of God? What does it say about the character of mankind? What do you do? It's like a compass rose, one, two, three, four, and we do that with every single one. So it's really multipliable and really simple because people don't know the Bible really in our generation, so we're trying to teach them how to make it fun. So uh, any others? Last one? Ooh. We can talk after, too, though. No, you go ahead, and then we'll, we'll, I'll make it quick. I promise, Reed. At what point do we multiply? Yeah, I try not to say split, but it's, no, it's okay. Um, <laughs> cult- language is important, so I try and multiply so there's a positive aspect on it, um, and people see that it as like a family going out on its own. Um, I don't like a church much bigger than 20 people, so when we're between 20 and 30, we start talking about sending people out. That's when you start to forget names. You forget what to pray for for people. You don't know what's going on in their lives. The intimacy aspect goes down quite a bit, and the accountability aspect for staying on mission goes down as well. People can hide a little bit more. They won't bring food anymore. They are not sharing the gospel. They're not making disciples, and nobody knows because there's enough people in the room that they can hide. So it doesn't have to be that way. You know what I mean? If you have a group of 30 friends and they're close, that's fine. But we should always be talking about reaching more neighborhoods, going to new houses, staying on the front foot on that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the right-sized church is about the number of people you can remember to pray for. So, what was your question, real quick?
Elders and leaders. Yeah. Yeah. So if you guys go to iTunes Store or wherever, Salt Church's app. And it's all in the media section. So we have lots of teaching in the media section, and we have a podcast. Yeah, but other elders have as well, and they can teach whatever the heck they want, honestly. We just have a guide up for them um, and a general guide so it's easier for them to do so. So um, they don't need special training to preach to people. It's like very conversational teaching, very Hebrew-style conversational teaching. Cool. We'll call it that to stay on time. Um, But if you guys have any other questions about Salt Churches whatsoever, to recap, November 1st through the 4th in Southern California in Orange County, we're doing the summit, and we can teach you all about Salt Churches there. Our website, that's the one. It's a gray cover. Um, saltchurches.com is our website and um, Salt Churches app um, if you want yep that's the one cool alrighty guys love you all thanks so much for coming appreciate it Thanks for tuning in today. We hope you feel inspired, encouraged, and empowered to change the world for the name of Jesus. Make sure to tune in and listen to our other podcasts and download our app, Salt Churches, found on iTunes. We hope to see you and hear from you soon. Thanks. Have a great day.